Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to church. Um, we're going to be heavy in God's Word today, so we're going to let the Word speak for itself. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 23, we are continuing in our series, The War of the World, where we're talking about the, the spiritual battle that is going on for every nation and every soul within our world, that the battle is very real, that the Bible, as we've looked at, talks about this spiritual battle, and it instructs us to be aware, to be on guard, to have a spiritual armor, to fight the good fight, to, to be overcomers. And the, the thing about this battle is that God desires for us to have love and peace and bring forth restoration and unity, and yet there is the other foe, the devil, that is temporarily... We already know he loses, so it's temporarily, but he is trying to destroy all that is good of God by lying, by stealing, by just sheer destruction, by turning us against ourselves, by deluding us with, with temptations that are not the real issue. And uh, we are talking about these spiritual attacks, these tactics that the devil uses, which he has used from the beginning of history. They have not changed, so we know how he works. And we are looking at these in order that we may fight the good fight and overcome those spiritual battles because one of the main attacks that he does is subtle they're not always outright now last week we looked at an outright attack but most of his attacks are subtle with tempting us even as Christians to tempt us to distract us from the real issue of prayer and dedication and fighting these battles with the Word of God now, oftentimes we think about these spiritual battles. We get the Hollywood things with the, the horror movies, the monster movies, and the monsters are right there in front of you, right? I mean, you just turn them on, and it's great watching a horror movie with Ken because he, with the music, he knows what's coming, and he starts commentating on the monster that's coming, you know? And then, of course, it shows up, and, and the people run into the barn where there's all these sickles and, and stuff, you know, the knives and stuff. So you know it's just a bad thing. But in real life, I should say in real spiritual life, the spiritual battle is much more subtle. It's deceptive is what it does. The Satan works by lies, he works by deception, he works by distraction, because if he can get us distracted from the real issue of pressing into God, of, of fighting a spiritual battle in the name of Christ, and in the power and the blood of Christ, and in the Word of God, and in bonding together with other Christians, to keeping our, our mindset on where we need to be and, and on our knees in spiritual battle, then he can mess with our lives. Not by him overcoming us, but by us choosing to be distracted. A number of years ago, I don't know if I think I've got the right show, but there used to be a game show on TV show called The Price is Right. Now that probably dates some of us in this room, right? But the price is right, and all these people would be there, and the host would call them down, and they'd guess the certain price of an item, you know, like four or five people down there, and the one who came the closest won the prize. And most often on that show, you remember what the prize was? A new car, right? And everyone's all excited. But then the host would come up, and they'd say, hey, wait a minute. You've won a new car, but you could have option B or option C. And it was a distraction because he would say, in one of the boxes, there may be a better prize than the car, but there may be a worse prize than the car. And he did a great job of distracting these contestants because they would get tempted by the, the thought of something bigger and better and greater than the car or the golf cart or the vacation. And they would be in a dilemma of, should I choose door one, two, or three, or option A, B, or C, what should I do? And most often, 
they lost, right? They won a few times, but they lost because the host would distract them from the real prize. He knew all along where the real prize was and what the big prize was, and once in a while there was a prize and some of these other options, but he would distract them and get their eyes off of the real prize. Now, as Christians, we fight this spiritual battle, and we fight for the upward call of Jesus Christ, for the prize that is before us, as the New Testament puts it right, the prize to glorify God, to be with Christ, to, to prove ourselves doers of the word, to be true biblical Christians. And in that, Satan cannot take that from us, but he can say, hey, you know there's this prize here in God, but would you like option B or option C? Door one, two, or three, you could have something better. And he distracts us. It's really a very simple game, but we often buy into it just like the contestants on those game shows bought into it because we think, Oh, shiny thing over here. We squirrel and we get distracted and we get our eyes off the main goal of where we should be looking. We get our eyes off the main reality that there is a very real spiritual battle going on. And as the Sunday school says, we are soldiers in whose army? God's army. And we should be fighting that spiritual battle again on our knees, in prayer, in the word of God with the sword of the spirit, and in the name of Christ. Now we've looked at a couple deceptions already so far in our, our study. The first one being a very common one of realizing that one of the deceptions of Satan when we get into a disagreement or a discussion with someone who doesn't agree with us or sees things different than us or seems to do something to us that we blame the other person, right? They are the problem. And that's a deception because that individual just like us, deserves the salvation of Jesus Christ, yes? That individual, just like us, was created by God, just like we are. That individual is loved by God just as much as God loved us. But if Satan can distract us to think that that person is the problem, we blame them. And then we turn and we turn internally and we get a mindset that says, oh, no one's had to go through what I've gone through. Right? Does it sound familiar? Have you ever done that? And the person becomes the object of our blame and our criticism, while all the while in the background we think of how much we've been hurt and how much they have hurt us and how much better life would be without them. It's a deception. The real battle should be interceding and praying for that person and our attitude as we're dealing with that person that we can show them the love of Christ, right? That's the real issue. So it's a deception. Second, we looked at Satan tries to trick us into traditions and keeping the status quo. Now we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to mess things up. You know, we don't want to speak out. But all through the New Testament, Jesus spoke out against evil. All through the New Testament, Jesus comes in with this new way, the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments, the fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of the prophecies, and it rattled the status quo that was going on with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, didn't it? It rattled the traditions that they were upholding. But Jesus says, it's not your traditions that are important. 
It's your relationship with God. It's the fullness of the Word of God. It's truth. Now, these people were very dedicated and sincere, but they were wrong. Jesus says it's about relationship, not doing a bunch of rules and regulations. Third thing we looked at last week was more of a frontal attack, which was to intimidate us and to isolate us from others. From church, from God, from reading God's word, from prayer, from other Christians, from our spouses, from our children, from our parents. That if those subtle deceptions don't work, then he seeks to intimidate us somehow, to put us down, to make us feel guilt and shame, and then to separate back because we don't feel like being with other people. And in that isolation, he just continues to feed our ears lies and lies and lies and lies and condemnation. But when we go back to the spiritual battle, back to the Word of God, and we fight it right in God's way, we know very clearly that God's Word says, therefore there is no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. And yet Satan tries, when he isolates us and he intimidates us, he tries to bring forth condemnation to belittle us. But when we go back to the Word of God, we can gain so much encouragement and boldness, and as the Bible says, be courageous in Christ because there is no condemnation. Christ has alleviated all sin and all shame and all guilt and all past and all condemnation from us. And in Jesus Christ, we are a new creation, not just in salvation, but every new day. And God designed us to have a purpose every new day because this is the day that the Lord has made, and he says, we will what? We will rejoice and be glad in it. We will not be condemned and downtrodden. We will not be anxious. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And we will submit and surrender ourselves to the will of God for this day. That it would be his provision and protection over us. Do you see how Satan tries to deceive us with these things? And do you understand how easily we buy into them? They're subtle, and we do them all the time. And then when we get back, we get back to where God, and we're like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Right? What was I doing? Today we look at deception number four, and we're going to call it this. Death by legal, I mean, excuse me, death by lethal religion. Death by lethal religion. Religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ are completely different and are incompatible. And we'll look at that. Death by lethal religion. Matthew 23, we're going to look at that in a minute, but you might want to be there. That's where we're going to dig in first, and then Acts 9 as we dig into the Word of God. Religion may be one of the most powerful, destructive, deceptive forces in our world. Do you know why? Because religion is done in the name of God. Religion is put forth in the name of God. It's for the glory of God, for the power of God, for the good of God. But it's not of God. And that's why it's so destructive. Because it tags those words on there that what you do, what traditions you keep, what patterns you go through, what rituals you do, are all in the name of God. And it tweaks us into thinking that we are doing the right thing. And it's so deceptive. Religion 
deceives people, it ruins their lives, it ruins relationships, and it warps our own thinking about ourselves. Because in religion, it's a very competitive works mentality that often people caught up in religion never feel like they are good enough for God and that the wrath of God is around the corner. And they must do more and more and more to appease the supernatural God that is out there whose wrath is waiting to come upon them. It's a works mentality. Now we're not going to dive into politics today, but we are going to take a little sidetrack with death by lethal religion and look at uh, a ruling that the Supreme Court had a number of years ago. I don't think it's still in place, but it used to be in place. For those states that uh, had capital punishment as a legal form of punishment in their states, the Supreme Court came out a couple of years ago and said, hey, if you're going to do capital punishment, you must do it by lethal injection. And you know why the Supreme Court chose lethal injection? Because catch this hypocrisy. It's the kindest way to kill a person. Doesn't that not just make sense? It's the kindest way, the most humane, loving, compassionate way to what? Kill a person. So the Supreme Court said, if these individuals have to pay for their crimes, and their crimes have been so horrendous that they must pay for it with their very life, well, we're gonna kill them kindly. What an oxymoron, right? I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to do it with kindness. Here's what happens in lethal injection. There are three stages. And as, as I share these with you, I want you to think about religion. Not a relationship with Jesus, but religion and all that you know about religion. Laws, regulations, rules, rituals, practices, matras. And I want you to think about how lethal injection and how it brings forth death is so much how like religion brings forth death in the individual, spiritual death. So three stages to a lethal injection. Number one, it is done intravenously. In other words, there is a needle inserted in someone's arm and the um, chemicals come into the bloodstream and affect the person from the inside out. So the first one is sodium pentothal, and it anesthetizes the person. In other words, it puts them to sleep. Now, I've never seen a real lethal injection, but I looked it up and it says that when the sodium pentothal is introduced into the person's bloodstream, they literally fall into a deep, deep, deep sleep within 10 to 15 seconds. So the first thing is to lull a person into complacency, into sleep, a deep sleep. The second thing that happens is they introduce a chemical called pavilon, which is a muscle relaxer. This muscle relaxer is so strong, it literally freezes the muscles to the point that even when the toxins come in next, there are no spasms. It paralyzes them. And then, of course, the third thing is the potassium chloride, which is administered as a toxic agent. And what it actually does is it cuts off the neurons from the brain that send the signals to the heart that say, keep pumping. That's what lethal injection does. First, you put a person to sleep. You lull them into a place of complacency, completely relax them. Then you relax their muscles and that so they're not striving anymore. 
and then you introduce a lethal toxin into their system. That's how Satan destroys people by religion. It's very similar. First, Satan introduces different thoughts and views about God. You know, all roads lead to godliness. You know, God is just this multifaceted diamond, which each facet is just a different representation of God. It promotes people to believing that their idea about God is right. It's not biblical. It not, doesn't, it's not verified by the Word of God, even though some religions, cults, twist the Word of God to try and make it so. But it lulls people into this truth of thinking that their creation of their God and what their God desires and wants from them to avoid his wrath makes them safe. And because they do these rituals and traditions and these, these practices, whether it's a Saturday or on a Sunday or a different day of the week, because they go through these, these patterns of religion, tradition, whether it's Hail Marys or whatever it may be, they think they are, what? Safe. And when you think you're safe, you are not on the defense, are you? When you think you are in safety, you are not on the alert. When all the while the Bible tells us what? Be on the alert. Be aware. So that's the first aspect of death by lethal religion is we have a man-created religion. It's not biblical. It does not go back and is not verified by the word of God in context. It's not two, three verses pulled out to say, hey, they mean this. It's verified by the Word of God in context, in fact, in history, and in truth. But these religions make people feel like they're serving God. I mean, there are churches out there, they don't care what you believe. You show up with them, you worship with them on Sunday. It doesn't matter what you believe. There's no official doctrine. As long as you're there and as long as you don't make waves, you're accepted in their church. You know, for 25 bucks, you can go down and get a pastoral license, and you can make your own church. Some people do. So that's the first aspect, to lull people into the sense of what they are doing with their self-created religion, their self-created God, by doing rituals, by doing these practices, by saying these certain things again and again and again, saves them and makes them safe. And because they feel safe, they are no longer on the alert. They are no longer looking for the hope in Jesus Christ, the one true living God. They're not looking for that because they have a sense of security and safety of their own making, which is the first deception. Second is, once they're into that religion, the devil lulls them in to paralyzing them by patterns. Patterns, again, traditions and rituals that if I say this certain mantra, if I say this certain prayer again and again and again, it will save me. If I say this confession of person, it will save me. If, if I do this ritual, it will save me. It will do the work for me. It will appease God and his wrath will not be upon me. Did you ever notice that Jesus didn't do a lot of the traditional rituals? at the time, the, the religions that the people did at the time, even in Judaism, 
He did some, but he didn't practice them on a regular basis. In fact, the Pharisees were always on Jesus because they're like, it's the Lord's day and your guys are picking wheat in the field to eat. Your guys are not washing their hands. They're unclean. The religious leaders were always on Jesus because he was not keeping these rituals and traditions, which are like, oh, these will keep you holy. Because if you're unholy, you can't come into the synagogue, which is radical in truth. Because Jesus says, I didn't come to save those who were healthy. I came to save those who what? Were sick and needed a savior. I came to save sinners. Bring the sinners into the church. They may hear the gospel message that I may save them. And the religious leaders go, if you don't keep these rules, these 600 and some odd rules, well, you're no longer holy. You're no longer allowed in because you are unclean. And Jesus says, those are the ones I want because they need help and they realize it. You see the contrast, the deception? The religious leaders are saying, by these rules, if you don't do them, you must stay out. And Jesus is saying, bring them in in hordes. My goodness, let me heal them. Let me love on them. Let me shed my grace upon them. Let me bring them salvation. Jesus says, I don't care about your 600 plus rules. I care about the life, the eternal life of the individual. And I came that they might have new life through me. Third thing. Once they've got this man-created religion, once they're bought in these rituals and patterns and traditions, the lethal injection is this. In doing these things and thinking they bring a salvation, it closes a person's heart. It makes them have a hard heart. Now they talk about love, they talk about acceptance, but if their beliefs are challenged, oh boy, you just put the dog in the corner, didn't you? I mean, if you challenge their beliefs and say, well, the Bible says this, and um, here's your history. Have you forgotten your own religious history? And we deal with it with the Word of God. These people become wolverines, don't they? I mean, they attack because their heart is not free. It's bound up in these rituals. And their self-made God and their self-made salvation, it's not bound up in freedom. And that's why religious people can say they talk about love and peace and joy and all that. But if you challenge them, they turn and they turn fast because their heart is really closed. They have stopped looking for the one true living God. Now Webster gives a definition of religion. It says this, religion is a set of organized beliefs, practices, and systems that are most often related to the belief and worship of a controlling force such a personal God or another supernatural being. Religion, the word itself, actually comes from an old French word, which goes back to the Latin. The Latin is religial, which catch this. It means to fear the supernatural. The Latin word religio, the root word of religion, means to fear the supernatural. And in that fear, it's a fear-based mentality in religion because you are fearing the wrath of that supernatural God coming upon you, so you do everything you can to avoid the what? The wrath. That's what it's about. It's about avoiding the wrath. It's not about living in freedom. It's about avoiding the wrath 
if you look at the French word, and I'm going to butcher this. If any of you speak French out there, you're going to laugh at me about, about as much as what I used to try and sing Spanish songs in my English. It's no bueno. But it's religere, and it means to tie up or bind. To be bound to a set of rules or vows. So the very base words of religion, one, mean to fear the consequences, the wrath of the supernatural being, and to be bound up by a bunch of regulations. Well, that doesn't sound like the gospel at all, does it? It doesn't sound like grace, or freedom, or love. It's being bound up in a fear-based mentality, fearing what this supernatural being will do to you if you don't do these things to appease them. In the New Testament, we saw it by people would literally offer their child to Molech in a fire and burn them to death to appease Molech so he wouldn't come upon them. They would do these crazy things. They demanded blood sacrifices and human sacrifices to appease the gods, right? It wasn't freedom. It was doing whatever we can do to avoid the wrath of the God upon us. In essence, religion is simply a man-made base of rules and regulations deemed to appease God to gain his favor so we can avoid his wrath. It's all about running and keeping away from the wrath of the being. It's fear-based. And it convinces people that if they do these certain things, they will appease the God and they'll be okay. So let's look at Matthew 23. Matthew, one of the, the four Gospels, Jesus is in there and we see Jesus coming and he is speaking to the religious leaders in Matthew 23 and he is confronting religion. Because they have asked him all this time why he's not doing these things, why he's not keeping these 600 plus laws, why he's in essence making his disciples unclean and all this stuff. And Jesus comes straight out and he confronts religion. Now, I want you to realize something. These religious leaders are extremely educated. They are smart men. Not only are they smart men, they are dedicated men. They're not just wayward guys doing this. They have dedicated their life to this religious system of living. And not only have they dedicated themselves, they have dedicated themselves to making disciples of this religion. And in their hearts, they are extremely sincere about the religion that they are living and promoting. So oftentimes we paint these religious leaders as just kind of wackos, religious nuts out there. But we got to remember, again, these men are dedicated. They're sincere, sincere, they're devoted, they're intelligent, and they're promoting this thing because they think in the name of God, it's right. That's who they really are. So we pick up in Matthew 23 as Jesus confronts the religious leaders about religion and what it does to people's lives. Read with me. I'm reading out a New American Standard starting in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and they what? Do not do them. Do not practice them. Here's what Jesus says religion does in tying up these practices. Verse 4. 
They tie up heavy burdens and they lay them upon men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be what? Noticed by men, seen by others. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So it's all for the approval of who? Of men. It's not for the approval of God. They're doing these things for the approval of men and they're making it difficult for the people in their congregation to do these things and they won't even do them themselves. Skip down to verse 13. Now Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders themselves. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Wow, third time. I think he's, I think he's trying to make a point here. Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte or disciple, and then when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. <laughs> Stop there for a minute. Now, those of you who just want to see the loving Jesus, you know, Jesus meek and mild with his little lamb and his little white cloth, this is not that one. These are not calming, comforting words, are they? This is Jesus on the frontal attack, the spiritual attack against what Satan is doing to the people and making them, as he says in verse, verse 15, literally sons of hell. Jesus is confronting these people head on and saying, you are hypocrites, you are liars, you are deceivers. This is not meek and mild little Jesus. Oh, grace, God bless you. Jesus is fighting a spiritual battle here for us all to see and saying, people, this is very real. You have to follow in my image. You have to fight against this religious stuff because it's damaging people's lives. It's making them sons of hell because they're missing the truth. It's death by lethal religion. And it's so easy to buy into because it tickles the hearts and ears of men. Because if they believe that if they do certain things, they appease their God. It's not about grace. It's not about freedom. It's about heavy burdens and being guilt-ridden, always wondering if you're doing enough. And if you've done enough, well, the God probably expects more of you then. You never arrive. You never get there. And if you make one sin, well, you fall down the ladder and you got to start all over again. It's a horrible life of striving again and again and again. Pick up again in verse 16. Jesus is not done yet. <laughs> he is not done. He says, woe to you blind guides. In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys are deceived. You were spiritually blind to the truth. You were spiritually blind to God. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, oh, that is nothing. 
But whoever swears by the what? The gold, the money, the treasure in a temple. Well, then you're obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold in the temple or the temple that what? Sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, well, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important? The offering or the altar for altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. You notice Jesus doesn't say the gold. Jesus is saying, I am the treasure in the temple. Whoever swears by the temple swears by me also because I am the riches beyond blessing. I am the riches beyond belief. It's not a materialistic monetary wealth and gold. It's about a relationship with me. In verse 22, he goes on, he says, Whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it, once again referring to him. Verse 23, Woe to you! I'm mad. Can you imagine these guys? Hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Blind guide, blind guide, blind guide. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, again. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, oh my gosh, it just goes on. <laughs> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the insides are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly, appear righteous to men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Skip down to verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And Jesus isn't done fighting a spiritual battle of death by lethal and re religion. He goes on to tell them what he's going to do to remedy the damage that they have done in their hypocrisy, in their blindness, in their man-made religion and rules and, and getting the, the focus off of the real issues, he says, I'm going to tell you right now how I am about to remedy this, but I'm also going to tell you because of being in your religion how you will respond to my remedy. He gives them a foresight of what has come. Verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you. Now, this is key. Jesus doesn't say, God's going to do this. Religion's going to accomplish this. Jesus says what? I am. And who is the great I am? Jesus. He says, I am God, and I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. This has got to be a crazy scene in the streets, doesn't it? He's just calling them out. He calls them again. 
blind guides, hypocrites, woe to you. And he says, here's how I am, which they knew what that meant, and I'm going to fix the problem, and here's what you are going to do to my solution. You see how damaging Jesus says religion is? It's horrible. Getting stuck in doing rules and regulations to be sacrificially unclean so you can enter the synagogue. It's crazy. It's like saying, it's like being in a hospital and saying, oh, excuse me, people, if any of you are sick or lame, well, we don't want you in our hospital because we only want healthy people in our hospital. So if you are sick or lame or dying, stay out of the hospital. That's what religion does. We want it all nice and clean and perfect in here. We want to control what happens in here. So yes, we're a hospital, but we only want healthy people in our hospital. It's damaging. A hospital is a place of what? Where you come to get healing and help. A church is a place of what? Where you come to get healing and help. And to sit there and tell people that you can't come into church because you didn't do Law 47 and Law 96 and Law 212, you are unclean, you cannot come in because you didn't keep the rules. You stay out. We only want the clean people in, <laughs> the good people. It's totally against Christ's gospel, isn't it? But the people at the time lived it. And they tried so hard to appease God that his wrath would not come upon them. Think of the lives of these men and women, constantly trying to remember how to keep 644 regulations and the Ten Commandments, which the regulations were made up by the scribes and Pharisees to protect the Ten Commandments, which the Ten Commandments were never meant to save us, but what? To show us how much of a sinner we are that we needed a Savior. Your life is simply spent trying to remember these things and to accomplish them without messing one single one up. Does that sound like abundant life? Sounds like a horrible life. Of always having to do everything right. I mean, think of the stress these people went through. And if some of you are listening online, and you're thinking, well, good thing I'm not involved in a secular religion. I'm not caught up in this. Well, I'll tell you what, secularism and humanism are also religions because they're a religion of your own making, opposing religions. You're still in a religion. It's just called secularism or humanism. So here's the question we have to ask. What is the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus? Why is religion so bad and Jesus says a relationship and new life in me is so good. To do that, let's dig back into Acts chapter 9. We've been there in, in the book of Acts the last couple Sundays. We're going to continue there. Acts 9 is the picture of two individuals. Of a Pharisee by the name of Saul, who, like we said earlier, was dedicated, committed, sincere, extremely educated, and have a fervor for doing religion in the name of God. We're going to see in Acts 9 that Saul's purpose before God converts him and changes him to being a Christian. That Saul's intent as a Pharisee is literally to travel around and to imprison Christians because they challenge Judaism. 
they threatened his religion. And he had a fervor to go out and got permission by the religious leaders to round these Christians up, to imprison them, to torture them, to separate them from their families, and some to even what? Kill them, all in the name of who? Of God. Well, that sounds lovely. You don't buy into my religion? In the name of God, I will kill you. I will torture you. Sounds nothing like the gospel. Doesn't sound like freedom at all. So we see Saul before his conversion and the life he lived. And then we're going to look at Peter. Peter, who grew up as a Jewish boy in this religious society, but kept looking for the truth. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he recognizes the truth in Jesus, and he is converted. And I want you to see the heart difference of these two men, the lifestyle difference of these two men in the book of Acts, because it's radically different. Acts 9, verses 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Did you catch that first sentence? Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Well, that sounds grace and loving, doesn't it? He's in such a fervor, he's just like, I've got to destroy them. He went to the high priest and he asked them for letters for, from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And, fell upon, and he fell upon the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, though his eyes were open, he could not see nothing. And they led him by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So what's the action of Saul in religion? He is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. He wants to destroy them any way he can. And God confronts him on the road to Damascus. Now I want you to know this. I want you to see Saul's sincerity and fervor and thinking he was doing right. It was so strong that Damascus is literally 140, 150 miles away from Jerusalem. So here's the picture. Saul is breathing these threats against the Christians. He goes to religious leaders and goes, I want you to give me these letters to get me through here. I'm going to travel 140, 150 miles to wipe out those Christians, those followers of Jesus, on foot. That's dedication. That's devotion. That's sincerity. But it's in what? The wrong thing. It's in the wrong place. It's in the wrong person. And as Jesus makes Paul blind physically, it's a symbol of how blind he was spiritually. The last verses say that his eyes were open, but he what? Could not see. It's a picture of spiritual blindness, being sucked up in religion and not seeking the one true living God. So the rest of the story is Saul is about his conversion. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. Now, notice this. 
Saul goes to the religious leaders to get permission to destroy the Christians. God speaks to Ananias directly, and Ananias' response is what? Here I am, Lord. Here I am. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen a vision, and a man named Ananias will come to him and lay his hands upon him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. Saul's reputation precedes him, doesn't it? He is a man of bloodshed. A man of hatred and anger. Verse 14. And from here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, but he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened, and now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately, look at the change in life from his conversion, immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is who? The Son of God. Isn't this the same man that was destroying the followers of Jesus? And now with the conversion, now that his eyes are open from religion, he is now preaching that Jesus is the Son of God in a synagogue where Jesus is. Verses 20 to 31 go on and talk about the impact of Saul's conversion of leaving religion, having his eyes open to the one true living God and being changed. But now we're going to switch gears a little bit and go down to verse 32. We want to see Peter and his heart. Remember we saw Saul at the beginning of Acts? He was breathing threats against the Christians. His, his reputation preceded him. He was to devour the Christians. And now we see Peter, a man whose heart has already been changed by God his lifestyle and his mindset. Verse 32. Now as Peter was traveling through all the regions, he came down also to where the saints lived in Lydda. And there was a man named Annius who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. Now, if Peter had been a good religious man, he would have just walked away from this paralyzed man and said, hey, God bless you. But Peter does something different because of what's in his heart and his relationship with Jesus. Peter said to the man, Ananias, Jesus Christ healed you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately the man got up. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. You see the difference of Peter's life? Peter's like, there's a need there. There's a man in pain and suffering. And through the name of Jesus Christ, he can be what? Healed. Let's do a good thing. Let's not bring forth mass destruction. Let's bless and heal in the power of Jesus. Verse 36 and 41 will go on to tell about Peter's life and ministry. But what I want you to see is this chapter is a chapter of contrasts, of opposing forces, one of a religion, one of a relationship with Jesus. One gives death and one gives life. One is confronted 
by God, one is used by God. One brings fear, one brings hope. One lives out of anger, one lives out of abundant life wanting to bless others and heal them and meet their needs. The good news for us is the story ends with both men coming to salvation. And the key verse for Saul is his radical conversion to Christianity. In verses 19 and 22, it says this, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who were called by the name, and who came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief's priests? Do you see the radical conversion in Saul's life? Leaving religion, death by lethal religion, and coming into a living relationship with Jesus Christ? Being bound by rules and regulations and fear and stepping into freedom and love and grace? He begins preaching immediately. In fact, Saul will go on as Paul, as God, Jesus renames him, to write 13 books of the New Testament. He will go on to be the most suffered man for the sake of Christ in his efforts to preach the gospel to all people, to bring them to the saving knowledge, to save them from becoming sons of hell through religion. This one single man who was entrenched in religion had his eyes opened to the love and grace of Jesus Christ, to the freedom that was there, and he himself saw what Jesus said in Matthew 23 about how damning religion is. And he said, I will be an ambassador for Christ and will seek to free people from being sons of hell and likely coming to that saving grace and salvation in Jesus Christ because it's freedom. Do you see how bad religion is? Do you see the contrast? Here's some lessons we learn as we close up. Religion focuses on acceptance from the outside in. Remember, why were the religious men doing all these things when Jesus confronts them in Matthew 23? For the notice of who? Men. For the high seats of honors, for the praise. Christianity is only for the praise of God and the glory of God. So religion focuses on acceptance from the outside in, and yet life and relationship with Jesus focus, focuses on life from the inside out. Religion is rooted in performance. A relationship with Jesus is rooted in grace and acceptance and freedom. Religion chains people, it binds them, and it slaves them in rules and regulations and practices. And a relationship with Jesus frees you. You don't have to do those things to earn God's favor to avoid his wrath. Here's a big one. Sincerity and devotion are no substitute for truth and faith. You can be sincere and devoted like Saul was and still go to hell. It's no substitute for truth and grace. Religion is a life of duty. A relationship with Jesus is a life of I get to because I want to. Here's one of the most horrible parts of lethal injection by religion. Religion is easy to spot in others, isn't it? But it's almost impossible to spot in ourselves. All of us have parts of religious thoughts in our brains and things that we do. 
but it's hard to see when we look in the mirror. And that's the lie of religion. Because religion wants others to come and do these things like we believe they should do, or they're not accepted. Here's some aspects of that. And by the way, I just had to spend 10 seconds looking at the mirror myself to come up with these. Just so you know, it's not about you personally. Religious people are controlling. Religious people are resistant to change. They don't want to do things the way other people want them to be done. Because their way is right. Your way is wrong. They're not servants. They're masters. Religious people are critical of others. Religious people have feelings of superiority. Again, my way is right. Why would I do your way? Religious people, by and large, can be very unloving. Because being right is more important than the other person. Religious people are actually fearful of the future. Why? Because that wrath, that unknown, is still coming. And it's uncertain. The beautiful thing about being a Christian is your future is secured. The Bible tells you over and over again, you are secured and your future is secured in Christ. You need not fear the future. Religious people are anxious because they're always worried, are they doing enough to appease God and not have his wrath come upon them? Religious people in the church are involved in political agendas because they want to have control, and when they are threatened by a different way of thinking or doing, they rally the troops within the church and try and alleviate those who attack. It's the same thing that the religious leaders tried to do with Jesus and the early Christians when Jesus confronted them. The sad truth about this whole thing, this whole issue, this whole message is that when I look at what religion is and how subtle Satan tempts us, I find that I myself fall into an awful lot. How about you? Wanting to be in control, wanting to be right, not caring about the other person, wanting to have my way done, not being a servant. Thinking, am I doing enough? Or if I say this, if I say the Lord's Prayer 15 times in three different ways, then it will save me. Religion is a subtle way to death. But here's the fact, Christians, the biblical truth, a relationship and salvation with Jesus Christ is freeing, it's empowering, it's loving, because there's no rules and regulations you need to do, because the love of God self-regulates that you do the right thing. You do it because you want to, not because you have to keep the letter of the law. You don't have to be right because the rightness of God is in you. And there's this thing called grace and forgiveness and the love of God covers, you know how many sins? All of them. And it frees us to have abundant life. May God make us alert and aware that we would not buy into the subtle deception of religion in our lives and may open the eyes of others through Christ that they may leave religion to. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, sometimes our pictures of you are so wrong that yes, you are gracious and meek and mild, but Lord, when it comes to those who attack your people and your kingdom, who, who lead people to hell, you directly attack them head on and you tell them 
how wrong they are and how wrong the, the religion that they're peddling is. Lord, open our eyes that we may see the goodness of God, that we may not get bound up in the deception of, religious, of religion. Keep us aware and on the alert. Help us not to buy into these subtle lives of Satan that we would live religious lives, but help us to focus even more on your word that we would live abundant, free lives in you. And God, make us ambassadors like Peter, like Paul, that would share your gospel that others may re leave religions also and come into the renewing, the life-giving, the free relationship with you and salvation through grace. In Jesus' name.